Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is on the air. Never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is a call to arms for those American patriots who, in the tradition of our founding fathers, will stand up now to defend the Constitution and the liberties that it guarantees to each citizen, to each of us. That is our mission, to explain in a clear and concise manner the direct effect of each issue on the individual, on you personally not some anonymous being in a distant place, and to define in no uncertain terms the consequences of inaction. Let the battle begin. Well, if from a libertarian perspective, and given the concept of this being a contract where the states were the creators of another entity, not part of the contract... Libertarians would believe that that a state and its citizens has a right to nullify, nullification, interposition, and secession, being the three ways which anyone w- that any party to a contract could do. If you were you and five guys got together and had a contract to form a, a company and things were going in the wrong direction, uh, you could pull out, uh, and there would be various legal ramifications one way or the other but nevertheless uh if you were part of a company that was going that was not doing what it had originally been set up to do you know and let's look at a let's look at a situation here we know that in our republic we elect people by a democratic means but the the constitution protects the individual rights and that's what the constitution is all about those individual rights we've discussed that so let's say in the case of the second amendment suppose the government uh goes ahead and does universal gun registration or confiscation or any of those things which are clearly unconstitutional and the court system which is really at this point not an independent judiciary by any means because it's all politicized. Um, what kind of remedy do you have under those circumstances if the federal government goes ahead and makes some draconian gun laws, the, the federal court system bows down to that instead of protecting the Second Amendment? Where do you go? Well, um, again, libertarians have some different views on this, but let me tell you what my view is. And that is that the state uh, does not have to participate in the enforcement of federal law, but cannot stop the feds from enforcing federal law, except through uh, the judiciary. So what the states can do is bring a lawsuit uh, that ultimately, one would guess, would get to the Supreme Court and accuse the federal government of violating um, the Constitution. And the Supreme Court... Um, per Marbury versus Madison, 1803, um, where Justice Marshall stated, it is emphatically the province and duty of the judicial department to say what the law is. So in other words, the Supreme Court exercising judicial review uh, has the final word, and that doctrine has been followed uh, ever since the framing era. So instead of 50 individual states reaching different conclusions, 
regarding the constitutionality, we have one Supreme Court that establishes a uniform rule for the entire nation. The framers agreed with that. In Federal 78, uh, Hamilton wrote, uh, a limited constitution can be preserved in practice no other way uh, than through the medium of courts of justice, whose duty it must be to declare all acts contrary to the manifest tenor of the Constitution void. Uh, Madison shared a view, and he said that independent tribunals will be uh, naturally led to resist every encroachment upon rights expressly stipulated for in the Constitution. So uh, the uh, courts are the remedy when the federal government is overreaching, and That's the remedy that we've used uh, for 225 years, with one exception, and that is when the states decided they would uh, take matters into their own hands and secede. And, of course, we know how that worked out. Well, you know, again, we're really uh, talking about judicial activism, uh, which we touched on before as well. Uh, And, you know... (sighs) When you look at what has gone on in in recent decades, especially in the last hundred years, with increasing uh, intensity, that the the progressives have really changed the the tenor, the the direction, the philosophy of the judicial system through appointment process, as well as changed so many of the minds through indoctrination of young people, and so if we rely completely upon the court system to maintain the the constitution aren't we aren't we kind of at risk well we we may well be and uh, you know i wrote a book on <laughs> where the courts have have, uh, have uh, i know you have and i'm i'm waiting for the sequel because i think you got plenty of <laughs> plenty plenty of things to write about yeah. <laughs> since case number 12 well we we don't have a perfect system there's no question about that the courts occasionally make mistakes uh, and sometimes uh, more than just occasionally uh, the question is whether that's uh, the best of the alternative systems that are available to us the option of allowing each of the 50 states to decide what they think the Constitution represents and allowing each of them uh, to nullify those federal laws that they don't happen to agree with, I think, is, is a recipe for chaos. And uh, so, like it or not, uh, we have one final authority, and that's the Supreme Court. And uh, we've, uh, you know, we have it. we've had a pretty good 225-year run, notwithstanding the number of mistakes that the court has made. Right, and and I see, and, and I agree with you, obviously in the overview. But look at some of those decisions. I mean, I mean, some of them just and from your book. I mean, they make absolutely no common sense or legal sense. I mean, how can the wheat of a farmer grown in his own backyard for his own consumption have anything to do reasonably with interstate commerce? I mean. Those kind of decisions are just mind-boggling. Yeah. Well, I, I certainly agree with that and, uh, again, wrote quite extensively about that. But imagine if we went the other way. Imagine if state nullification uh, were uh, permitted. So uh, Chicago's gun ban would still be in effect uh, because that's what the state said. Orville Faubus uh, could still be blocking, uh, if he were alive, uh, Arkansas from having school integration. Uh, uh, Virginia could have continued its ban on uh, interracial marriages. Uh, Texas could still be jailing gay people for having consensual 
uh, sex. And, you know, we're not talking about a century or two ago. That's as recent as uh, as uh, th- this century. So fans of nullification mistakenly assume that the states are always a check against federal tyranny. Sometimes it cuts the other way. Uh, the, the feds can be a check against state tyranny, <laughs> slavery being the the obvious case, right? Uh, the states can very um, often be tyrannical, and the feds have an obligation under the 14th Amendment to intervene. Um, and they do so uh, through the courts, generally. So where in the Constitution, from your viewpoint, is the Supreme Court given the authority to overturn acts of the legislature? You don't find that in the Constitution, but you do find it um, implicit in the Constitution, and it was uh, reflected in the Federalist Papers. I quoted the, uh, the Hamilton from Federalist 78, and, and Madison uh, felt the same way. And even before um, the Marbury versus Madison case, which uh, where Chief Justice Marshall effectively created this concept of judicial review, um, the Virginia General Assembly, for example, had passed uh, Madison's report of uh, 1800, and it clarified that the states can declare uh, federal laws unconstitutional, but the declaration would have no legal effect unless uh, the courts agreed. And what Madison wrote was, and again I'm quoting, state declarations are expressions of opinion. It intended only for exciting reflection. The expositions of the judiciary, on the other hand, are carried into immediate effect. Um, and then in later, in Notes on Nullification, Madison wrote that uh, an individual state does not have the right to declare a federal law null and void. That requires a collective action uh, by the states. So the states individually couldn't do it, uh, but the states collectively uh, could do it. Of course, they attempted to do it one time that we know about uh, with uh, not great success. Well, you know, however, though, that there were earlier attempts at nullification, the Virginia and Kentucky resolutions and the 1803 embargo by Jefferson. Uh, Now, some people would say that those did not succeed because of political reasons, not judicial reasons. Yeah, I mean, you know, we had uh, nullification Attempted nullifications failed on on several occasions. Uh, Calhoun uh, nullified in South Carolina two national tariffs. Uh, Jackson uh, uh, sent troops to South Carolina. The state ultimately backed down. Uh, and, and the Supreme Court rejected nullification in a case called Abelman versus uh, Booth, where Booth had rescued a fugitive slave, and he was arrested for violating right. the Fugitive Slave Act, and uh, Wisconsin held that the act was unconstitutional and released Booth, even though he had been convicted in federal court. But after the uh, Abelman uh, decisions, the federal courts reinstated uh, Booth's uh, conviction. So, you know, there's a mixed history here, um, but, you know, bear in mind the states get it wrong quite frequently. I mean, we had... The courts had to step in in Brown versus Board of Education to correct the most blatant state violations of individual rights, namely the uh, segregation. Well, you know, I, I mean, it's obvious, I mean, that men are imperfect. And because 
men, meaning humanity, men and women, make up governments. There's going to be mistakes along the way. And I understand that there needs to be an arbiter, someone, some group or some function of government that will try to keep things based upon that the securing individual rights. It's just my my fear. My fear is that we have gone along a road now where we may lose many of the rights uh, that our founders secured for us 230 years ago, rightfully so, because that's the f- individual freedom is the prize. I mean, for, for centuries, there was no individual freedom. And our, fa- our framers, the framers of our Constitution, the founders of this government, were wise enough to understand how critically important that is to a human being to be free. Well, indeed, I, 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 uh, I don't uh, suggest that uh, leaving this up to the courts is a uh, perfect solution, but leaving it up to the states is a much less perfect uh, solution. Imagine, uh, for example, that the feds were to pass a law stating that it's treason for a U.S. citizen to join ISIS uh, and conspire to carry out terrorist activities in the United States. And then Florida comes along and decides that that law uh, uh, violates free speech. Um, Now, do we want Florida able to nullify the federal law and stop federal officials from coming in and and apprehending uh, these... these, uh, uh, terrorists who have joined ISIS. Um, that, 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 of course, is a preposterous example, but one can imagine what kind of chaos we would have if each of the 50 states could decide which laws it is that they think they want to obey. Uh, the Constitution has enough wiggle room that you can conjure up arguments of all sorts to justify uh, objecting to certain federal laws. And sometimes it will be... Um, uh, those arguments will be conjured up by conservatives. Sometimes they'll be conjured up by liberals. And what you could imagine is that across the country, uh, we would have uh, lots of different laws, and nobody would know what the heck the law is that applied uniformly across the states. You know, I've often wondered, um, there is a clause in the Constitution which guarantees the citizens the rights, and uh, I forgot the exact term, but the uh, the permissions uh, from one state should carry to all the others. For instance, if you have a driver's license in North Carolina, it's good yeah. in Florida and it's things called like that. It's called the Full Faith and Credit Clause. That's right. Why does, not, why does that not apply to uh, concealed carry and uh, things of that nature? Well, the, the courts have come up with two exceptions to the Full Faith and uh, Credit Clause. And, um, um, the one that's most... Uh, relevant to your question is that the states have been able to um, decline to uh, honor the laws of other states when, in fact, uh, it violates public policy in the state. Um, So, for example, if the state of uh, New York decides that in downtown Manhattan you need a little bit more rigorous gun control than you have in the hills of Montana, it could stop people from Montana from bringing guns into uh, Manhattan when, in fact, the people in Manhattan who live there are not permitted to have guns. Um, I'm a, <laughs> I've been pretty active on the gun rights front, but I frankly don't find that to be an objectionable law. I do think that there are geographical differences um, in terms of 
carry restrictions and what would apply in the hills of Montana need not necessarily apply in downtown Manhattan or downtown D.C. or Chicago or any of the major cities. So there are occasionally needs for differing uh, laws, and to the extent that those laws, uh, if uh, Manhattan law were to be applied in New York, uh, if it would violate public policy in New York City, then then the, uh, the full faith and credit clause wouldn't stop New York from but you know that kind of creates a situation in which if you're traveling you that law from let's say dc or new york city disarms you everywhere because if you're traveling let's say you go to dc to visit you are unarmed all the way from your home to where you go because what are you going to do with the gun when you get to D.C.? When you cross that border from Virginia into the District of Columbia where you can't have the gun, whereas in every other state between your home and the district, you're allowed to carry that in your vehicle. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. You know, we had the Manchin-Toomey bill uh, three years ago, and one of the provisions of the Manchin-Toomey bill would have been to correct this problem of interstate transportation. The provision would have said that had it been passed, which it wasn't, it would have said that as long as a gun is carried for lawful purposes, um, it can be transported across state lines, and providing that it's unloaded and in a locked compartment or otherwise inaccessible from the passenger compartment of a car. And that would have allowed people to travel across states, notwithstanding the provisions of state law uh, to the contrary, but the NRA, as you probably know, objected strenuously to the Manchin-Toomey legislation, even though that would have been a provision uh, that would have benefited gun rights owners. And the reason for the objection to the legislation was that other provisions would have expanded background checks to cover gun show uh, sales at uh, private sales at, at gun shows and over the internet. So I think the NRA and the gun rights community made a big mistake not uh, accepting the provisions of mentioned to me because there were, on balance, uh, more provisions that were beneficial to gun rights advocates uh, than there were provisions that were harmful to gun rights advocates. Uh, nonetheless, uh, uh, the provision was defeated um, in a close vote, but it was defeated, and uh, there is at least the possibility now that gun rights is going to end up with all of the bad provisions and not get any of the good ones. Well, I think we've had a pretty interesting discussion of the Supreme Court today. And uh, I appreciate, Bob Levy, your being here uh, and discussing this. My listeners uh, really appreciate the Constitution. They appreciate the freedom that we have. They appreciate all of that concept that we we cherish so dearly here. Um, so thank you very much for being a guest on Freedom Forum Radio. Would you like to make a closing remark or two? Well, I'm, I, I would just say this, that the, the, President Obama hasn't had very much impact on the ide- ideological mix of the Supreme Court. Uh, we've had uh, one appointment, Liberal Justice uh, Sonia Sotomayor. She replaced Liberal Justice David Souter. Uh, we'd have Liberal Justice Elena Kagan replacing Liberal Justice John Paul Stevens. Uh, but the next president's appointments will have a considerable impact because we have the death of Justice Scalia and three other justices who are going to be uh, in their 80s before the next term uh, is over. And 
just as important. They're going to be about uh, 40 appellate court openings out of 179 seats, and they're going to be about 100 to 100 and a quarter district court openings out of uh, about 670 seats. Uh, and these these courts are very, very important. The appellate courts decide 3,000 cases a year. Only 70 of those typically make it up to the Supreme. So appellate appointments uh, are critically um, in, in, uh, critically important. So uh, that's all to say that the election of the next president is extremely important, not just for all of the things that we usually think about that a president does, but for the impact of that president uh, on the mix of the court. And bear in mind that the, the court appointment, to the extent that it's somebody in their uh, 40s or 50s, that court appointment could last for 30 years because justices on the uh, court, matter of fact, all federal judges, have lifetime tenure and uh, can be removed only by impeachment. So we're talking about very significant uh, appointments, both in number and in duration. And that means the election of the next president takes on an even greater uh, significance. And that's where the concept of textualism versus a living constitution, that divide is so very, very important to understand because we need to be assured that the justices on our Supreme Court will look at the constitution, the law itself, and not some idea that they might have in their mind about how it should be, but more how the law says it ought to be. That's right. The liberal... Um president is likely to want justices who uh, have, uh, in Obama's term, the empathy to recognize uh, what it's like to be uh, gay or poor or black. Um, And uh, the conservatives respond that, uh, I think quite correctly, empathy is certainly a desirable characteristic, but it is not the basis on which we determine the meaning of the Constitution. For that, we should look to the words that are in the document. So if you like the notion of a living constitution that can be bent by empathetic judges who have a social consciousness, then a liberal nominee will be your cup of tea. But if you prefer a textualist who's anchored and bound uh, by the written words that are actually in the founding document, uh, then you should gird your loins during a liberal administration. And that decision is of paramount importance to each of us. Thank you, Robert Levy, chairman of the Cato Institute. Uh, and I'm going to wait for your sequel to The Dirty Dozen. Are you going to call it The Even the even Dirtier Dozen? <laughs> I'd have the toughest time picking out the 12 good cases of the Supreme Court. That would be a book that would be very difficult to write. Thank you so very much, and thank you for being on Freedom Forum Radio. Good to be with you. And that concludes another episode of Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum. Join the battle on our website, www.drdansfreedomforum.com. The right to own private property that cannot be arbitrarily confiscated by the government is the moral right and constitutional basis for individual freedom. Yeah, when I played the hoochie-coochie man... I get joy in everything, 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 everything gonna be all right this morning.